invite you to uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians in your Bible, chapter 3. How do you find 1 Thessalonians? Table of contents, right? Page numbers in the bulletin. Grab, grab our pew Bible. Go to the page number. Um, I want you to know as we get to to read this or start to read this is to know that um, Paul writes this letter to this this church that he may have spent relatively little time with, and he's he's concerned for them. He loves them dearly, and he sends Timothy. Uh, you recognize that name, Timothy to go check to see how they're doing, and Timothy comes back with a report on how the Thessalonian Christians are doing. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3, verses 6 6 through 13. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in your presence of our God because of you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may, we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. What does this passage have to do with Advent? A whole lot. A whole lot. Um, When you think of Advent, you may think, oh, Advent, that's the four weeks that lead up to to Christmas. This is when we, when we reminisce. This is when we start reading again the Christmas story and think of the shepherds and think of uh, Mary and Joseph and traveling to, to Bethlehem. And this is when we start thinking of Jesus' birth. And of course, yeah, we may do all of that in Advent. However, historically, let's talk about Advent. Historically, uh, this is the season that the church has used uh, for reflecting, not primarily on Jesus' first coming, but primarily on his second coming. That's what Advent's about, thinking about when Jesus is coming back. And so while you may appreciate this month as, uh, you know, month number two of Christmas prep with all its seasonal beauty, Advent really is about the fact that Jesus is coming back and for thinking, now, what are we going to do about that? You see, Jesus' return is, um, just think about this. Um, 
we make a big deal out of some people returning. And maybe there's, maybe there's a family member that will be returning to your home this Christmas time. Maybe it's someone like dear old Aunt Sally. You know, dear old Aunt Sally, dear old Aunt Sally comes to your house every year for the holidays, and you may remember how particular dear old Aunt Sally is and how she likes to make little observations about this or that being slightly out of place in your home or how you may have gained a little bit of weight since last year or what have you. And so to avoid embarrassment upon dear old Aunt Sally's return, you start getting things ready and you clean your house and you rearrange the furniture back to where it was last year when she came so she won't fuss about that. And you start to diet and exercise regularly I mean, we do some things like that. Do we, do we do anything in preparation for Jesus' return, like we might for dear old Aunt Sally's return? Now, let me tell you, Jesus, uh, he may be drastically different than dear old Aunt Sally and may not really care where your furniture is in your house, um, but it would be very foolish for us to think that there is no preparation on our part necessary for getting ready for Jesus' return. And there's something important in the scripture about getting ourselves ready. And Paul writes to these Christians in Thessalonica, saying that he is praying that God would grow their love. Do you hear that at the end? That God would grow their love and strengthen their hearts, getting ready for Jesus' return. So I want to look at, at, at that during the sermon. And this important thing for us to do as we get ready for Jesus' return, something with growing in our love and strengthening our hearts, and, I, and encouraging one another to get ready for that. Um, and I want to look at three headings. I want to do this looking at three headings. They're in your, your uh, sermon notes, um, and they're kind of connected to one another. The first heading is this, Find Joy in People. And I want you to think for a moment about what brings you joy. Try to just tap into that for a moment. You might even scribble a few things in your note sheet. You know, this is what brings me joy. Um, what, what are the things that God uses to, you know, to bring out something a little more than happiness in you? Just joy. Maybe it's a, something visual. You know, seeing whatever, majestic mountains or whatever, um, something visual. Maybe it's something that you hear. You may feel joy welling up in you at Jones Hall, hearing the finale to Tchaikovsky's fifth or Beethoven's fifth or even Mahler's fifth. You might not like to admit being stirred by classical music. You know what? I played the fifth. That one was free for you today. Uh, maybe family brings you joy. Uh, did anyone write down a room full of people is what brings me joy? Because that essentially is what Paul is getting at. That a room full of people brings him joy. In verse 9, Paul says, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have 
in the presence of our God because of you. This section of this letter to the Thessalonians is about rejoicing in other people. And let's think about that because that isn't always easy. Uh, When you think of joy, a room full of other people may not be the first thing that comes to your mind, especially if you are an I on the Myers-Briggs scale. You know, the Myers-Briggs and I, introvert. Um, Enjoy a room full of people, my introverts out there. You're thinking, did you say enjoy or annoy? Because I get annoyed by a room full of people. I don't enjoy a room full of people, you may be thinking this morning. But you can see that Paul and Silas, they they feel this joy for this room full of people, this Thessalonian church, um, Thessalonian church. The interesting thing is they may not have spent that much time with the Christians in Thessalonica, uh, you read Acts chapter 17. It tells about Paul and Silas's brief visit there. It, the story is, is short. Uh, they're there. They preach the gospel. Some people follow them. Then there's some Jewish opposition to their ministry, their message. And so the Christians there, they urge Paul and Silas to leave for their own safety. And they wind up going on to Berea and then to Athens. So they might not have spent a whole lot of time there, and yet they're, they're just, they, they're stirred up with this, with joy, even though they left maybe prematurely, they thought. So uh, let's put ourselves in Paul and Silas's position. They left this, this little church of Christians. They, they wonder how they're doing, and, you know, they can't go to, Church in Thessalonica's Facebook page or Instagram page to see how they're doing. Um, What do you do? Well, you send your friend to go check on them. They sent Timothy. And and Timothy goes and sees how they're doing, especially with his Jewish opposition among them. And he comes back and he gives them their report. And that kind of makes sense of verse 8. Look look at verse 8 again. We'll have that on the screen. Um, It's kind of an interesting phrase. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Like now we can breathe again. We've been holding our breath, waiting for Timothy to return and tell us how you're doing. And, oh, we heard that you're doing great. We can breathe again. A sigh of relief. What gave Paul the ability to say, you bring me such joy, especially when he may not have even known them very long. Um, yeah, it's a surprising thing. You, know, you think about people who you wouldn't be surprised if they said, you know, you bring me joy. Maybe your parents, maybe your spouse, but just other people that you've maybe gotten to know over the course of several weeks or several months. Oh, you bring me joy. Those are strong words. We're a little more used to saying you bring me happiness, but joy? Joy is, is so much more eternal than happiness, isn't it, right? I mean, happiness comes and goes. Joy, what does it do? It anticipates eternity. Joy, in its essence, is powered by this gospel message that through God's love made available by Jesus Christ, eternity of love with God and with others is 
hours. And that, that gospel message just fuels joy. So what is the Christian community of faith? It is the joyful community of believers that is always proclaiming to one another that God wins, that God's grace and gospel wins, and therefore we share in his victory and in this, this joy. Now, life is challenging, and sometimes it can try to fool you into believing that struggle is all that there is. Well, the community of faith, us gathering together on Sunday mornings, we are for one another, this continuous reassuring voice that God's love and joy will gain victory after victory after victory in this life and, of course, for eternity as well. And we proclaim this message together and to one another. Joyful community happens when believers worship on Sunday, remembering that it is the Lord's day. It's resurrection day. It's the day of life. It's the day that God shows you get life because I paid the cost on the cross and you get life. So come to church. It's not about, you know, uh, trying to put on a happy face. And it's about showing up. It's not, not about putting on a happy face. It's about preaching this gospel message to one another so that we're not fooled by the world that struggle is all there is. And I think this is one reason why Paul found great joy in, in the Thessalonian Christians, because of this, this gospel message that they shared. But I think Paul was thinking of another thing as well when he said that they brought him joy. See, Paul is seeing something in these Christians. And this leads us to our second heading, and it's this. It's the eternal nature of people. Paul finds joy because of the eternal nature of people. We are eternal beings. One of the best um, paragraphs on this, I think, is from C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory. And in the sermon, he talks about how uh, we, are, we are created not for this world, but for, but for heaven, for, for another world. And so we long for heaven, even if we don't realize that is what we are longing for, that longing is within us. And because we are made for eternity, we are actually eternal beings. So let me read a little bit from, from this about the eternal nature of people. Um, he writes, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And there he's, he's using poetic language just to talk about us being eternal beings. Um, it's a serious thing to remember that. And I, I put this in your bulletin, in your little sermon notes, uh, just for you to read. But we'll put it on the screen too, this next section. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to. Now think about just the person that, boy... Yeah, hanging out with that person for five minutes sounds, seems like five hours. Um, even that person <laughs> may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. You see, in this life, 
each other's personal, eternal destiny. It's still unfolding. It's still unfolding. C.S. Lewis continues, All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one of these two destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, he writes, it is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life to ours is that of a, of a light, like a life of a gnat to ours. But it is immortals whom, we, um, whom with we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We are immortal beings, eternal beings. And I think Paul realizes this about the Thessalonian Christians when he thinks of them. He thinks... These are these eternal beings. And so he prays that, that God would grow their love in them as they get ready for Jesus' return. He feels his burden to pray for them. Why? Well, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory, my neighbor being an eternal being, the load, the weight, the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. I should feel the burden to help people to this this destiny, this glorious destiny. What Paul and C.S. Lewis both point out is that who we become in this world is directly linked with who we will be in the world to come. All right, so let me give you in another words. In other words... You cannot be a selfish, hard-hearted, prideful individual until your deathbed and then expect to all of a sudden be someone who embraces Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Call upon the name of the one that you willfully or passively rejected throughout your life and so receive salvation. Now, I didn't say it's impossible. It is possible. There were two thieves on the cross with Jesus, but only one had the humility on his deathbed. The humility inside of him that empowered him to turn to Jesus in the end, and the other did not. It is possible, but it takes humility. So let's, let's think about heaven. Heaven is not, um, and Lewis writes this, C.S. Lewis uh, writes this, heaven is not a bribe. It's, it's not that thing that, you know, at, at, some, at the hard-hearted, uh, prideful, stubborn person's deathbed, God's like, oh, please, please, please choose me so that I, and I'll give you heaven if you do. It's not a bribe. God doesn't say, please believe in me, go to church, obey my commands, and if you do, here's what I got for you. Heaven, it's your partying gift. No, that's a bribe. Rather, Heaven is the very consummation of our earthly discipleship. That means heaven is the culmination of our Christian growth. As you grow in Christ now, as you more and more desire Christ's ways, heaven's what our hearts are going to be turned towards heaven, right? 
We're going to long for it. Now, you can go ahead and think of heaven as Christ's ways 365 days a year, 24-7. It's all Christ's ways. If, there, if, if, it were, if heaven were a radio station, heaven's slogan would be, all Christ's ways all the time. So think about Christ's ways. Christ's ways. So I don't know what, you're, what else that might sound like. Christ's ways. Christ's ways. Christ's ways. Being a servant, that's Christ's ways. <laughs> Putting the interests of others before your own interests, that's the ways of Jesus Christ. Doing the will of his heavenly Father, that's the ways of Jesus Christ. Being in community, being in a church community, a church family of faith, that's the ways of Jesus Christ. And if you don't like that, and if you go through your entire life not liking that, chances are you won't like heaven because heaven is Christ's ways all the time. Uh, So I think there's a principle that we see in this. And it's this. I have it on the screen for you. The only way to love eternity is to be eternally loving. To love heaven that comes when you've cultivated a life of loving Jesus Christ and the ways of Jesus Christ and knowing that you'll be with Christ forever and we'll be able to continue living out the ways of Jesus Christ. And yes, when we pass from this world to the next, we are made new. You know, we go in as a sinner, right? And when we pass to the next world, we're made new. Our hearts are cleansed. But now is the time to start hungering for those ways of heaven, to seek God, to pray that God will change our hearts along the way. And and Paul realizes that about these Thessalonian Christians, their eternal beings. He's like, God, will will you now fill them with your love, help their love to grow? So that they'll love your son and love his ways and love heaven. But there is another thing that moves Paul to joy. Our third category this morning, uh, God's praise for his people. This, this third little truth, and it's amazing. Um, that God has praise for his people. And this makes... This helps us see this insight, uh, gives a little insight at least, into what Paul prays for in verses 12 and 13. Let's look at those two verses one more time. Verse 12, Paul prays this, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow. Now those two words are very strong. Keep that verse up there. Those two uh, words are very strong words. Increase. Uh, and overflow increase doesn't mean that God makes takes our love from just a little bit to a little bit more. That is not what that word increase means. That word increase means to um, to superabound, to just to be to the max. Similar with this word overflow. Overflow means to go above and beyond expectations. So God isn't saying, God isn't, uh, Paul is not praying, oh God, take their love, just, just increase a little bit. He's like, God, 
just blow the roof off their lives with your love growing in them. Paul prays that God would uh, grow their love expansively and explosively. And then look at verse 13. May God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes, when he returns with all of us holy ones. So, so may this explosive and expansive love that God grows in your life, may, may that make your, your hearts and your lives blameless and holy when Jesus comes, comes back. Now, why, um, why, would, why, why, does, why does Paul pray that? That uh, it's like he's praying, God, make them ready with love when Jesus comes back. Well, it's not so that they would earn that reward from God. It's not that, oh, God increased their love so that they will merit the salvation that you will give them. That's not why he prays that. When Jesus comes back, he won't be like, okay, you passed the test, you've earned it, here's heaven. That's not how it will go down. See, Jesus returns as judge. That judgment will not be in the form of who deserves what. It won't be in the form of Jesus counting up all the good deeds and saying, well, is this enough to to get the the grand prize? Let's see. Um, I think it's barely enough. You squeaked in. That is not how that judgment will happen. See, one thing the Bible reveals about judgment, that the judgment day of Jesus Christ, his return, is it will be a judging of quality. The quality of your life will, will be exposed. There won't be, you won't be able to hide behind anything. You won't be able to hide. There's no false pretenses. There won't be a putting on of a show. Uh, no last-minute impressing going on at that time. Jesus will look for quality, the quality of your heart. Look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He will judge the quality. He will expose the motives of the heart. That sounds a little intimidating to me, but then look at what Paul writes next. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. What does it mean that a person will receive praise from God? It doesn't mean that God's going to say to someone, Whoa, I can't believe what you did with your life. I'm blown away by what you did. You're such an awesome person. How on earth earth did you do that without my help? That is not what God is going to say. That's not the praise that God's going to give. No, the praise from God comes when God looks at us and says, Yes, you were exactly who I made you to be. You came out exactly how I fashioned you. And I made you for love. And I have love grow in your heart. And that's what Paul prays for. And now look at you, this magnificent creation of mine. God's the artist. We are the artwork. 
And ultimately, and this is what C.S. Lewis reminds us of in The Weight of Glory, God creates us to please him so he can take a step back and say, look at the beautiful creature you are. And our heart's greatest desire, and we may not realize this, but our heart's greatest desire is to receive the praise of the one who created us. To know more than just God accepts us, but that he's delighted in us. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. It's in the, the scriptures that God gives us praise because he's delighted in us, not for what we have done on our own, but for the creation, the artwork that God has shaped us, has shaped you into being. And Paul knows of Jesus' return and that Jesus is going to return to admire his good work. And, and, And Paul is just praying for those Thessalonian Christians, may God increase your love, strengthen your hearts, so that Jesus' return, you will receive praises from the one who created you. And somehow, when we see people becoming what God has created them to be, that gives us joy, doesn't it? It gives us joy. So two questions. First one is this. Will you strive to nurture selfless love in your heart now so that you will be the kind of person who will be loving for eternity. Yes, we rely on God to do that, but will you endeavor to to nurture, to allow God to nurture that selfless love in you now? See, I think it's less of a matter of trying to force yourself to be something that you're not and more of a matter of realizing that is how God has created me to be, this loving being. It's more of a matter of seeing selfishness as your unnatural behavior and seeing love as very much your natural, God-designed part of you. God, God has designed you to be there. It may not feel natural, but God has designed you to have a heart full of love. So now choose to live into that and rely on God's grace to do that. And two, second question, will you commit to encouraging others to do the same? How do we do that? Well, one, we follow what Paul did, and that's through prayer. In prayer, we do that. We commit to praying for one another. Um, but I think it's more than just prayer that we can do that. I think we can do that in fellowship by gathering together, by celebrating God's grace in our lives, by encouraging one another to grow in love. And you absolutely cannot do this without being together. Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is drawing near. Jesus is coming back. So don't give up on meeting together because you need one another. So please commit to being together. 
so that we can encourage one another, so we can cheer one another on, so that we can find joy in each other. Um, we receive joy most when we focus not on the temporal, but when we see this world and the people in this world as eternal beings, as they, as, as we get together and we remind ourselves we're aiming for eternity. Um, when, when we walk in the light of our creator and Lord Jesus Christ, Elsewhere, Paul writes, all things were created by him and for him. You were created for Christ. And the Lord will grow our love expansively and explosively until he comes again to admire his work, (laughs) to admire what he has done in your life. He will be pleased and delighted when we yield ourselves to him. So let us pray for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the artist, the grand artist, the great artist. Um, Sometimes we struggle in seeing that in our own lives, that we are works of art. So we humbly come before you, and we pray that you would grow our love, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would fill us with joy for each other, that we would walk together as a family of faith, that we would uh, keep our hearts set on you and our eternal life to come with you. And may we live each and every day with that as our focus. May we live each and every day knowing that we have an opportunity to show, reveal, through our actions, through our love, what a glorious artist you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.